It's a good time to be Basque. I mean, you're a Basque, and there's nothing wrong with that. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The days of suppressing the Basques when Franco ruled Spain are becoming a distant memory. Today, Basques speak and teach in their native language and proudly celebrate their culture in Northeast Spain, Southwest France, and even where they landed in California and Idaho. You have all of these American kids from the United States. They speak perfect English and also perfect Basque. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, two guides from the region update us on the pleasures of Basque country. Ireland has been divided for eons, but the power of Irish music has a way of bringing people together wherever you hail from. He's a Cork man, and I'm a Northern man, and when I go down to listen to him sing the Cork songs, you know, I just love it. I mean, I get these um, goosebumps. Highlights of Basque country and the singing culture of Ireland. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. To understand the soul of Ireland, you just have to listen to its music. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we continue our St. Patrick's Day celebrations with two Irish friends who bring us a few of the songs that have a special place in their hearts. Sail due south of Ireland and you'll find plenty to celebrate in the Basque country of Spain and France. As one of Europe's oldest cultures, Basque traditions reach back into pre-Christian times and straddle the national border. To help us get better acquainted with how they like to mark the start of spring in Basque country, we're joined by Augustine Cerisa. His family has lived for generations on the Bay of Biscay in the coastal city of San Sebastian. And Francisco Gloria comes to us from Pamplona, the city famous for the running of the bulls. It's on the edge of the Basque region in the northeast interior of Spain. By the way, today's interviews were recorded before the global pandemic closed the international borders. Augustine and Francisco, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Augustine, who are the Basques? Well, the Basque people are a very old tribe. They're known to be pre-Indo-European people. Pre-European? Pre-Indo-European people. Pre-Indo-European. What does that mean? This means that the humans were in Africa and they moved to Asia and they started moving to Europe. And the first settlements, one of the first settlements settled in the Basque country area. And these people have been there since they developed their own religion and also their own language and they kept it. Is the Basque language related to Spanish and French? Not at all. No, it has nothing to do with Latin or Greek. They still don't know where it comes from. What is it related to? Well, they don't know. It's they don't know. So <laughs> this was this is a really... Now, the irony is the Basque people, were, you could say, they were like they were one of the first people there, and they didn't get a country when they doled out the borders. It's known to be the oldest language in, in Europe. Some studies are relating this language to those very old languages from the northern Scandinavian countries okay. of Europe and um, Bulgaria as well. That's not 100% sure. Many times when a little nation doesn't get its own independent nation, it's divided between a couple of countries. Francisco, Basque country is uh, divided, of course, between France and Spain. How would you characterize French Basque country and Spanish Basque country? How are they similar? How are they different? Well, the Basque country, it's a very strong culture. And culturally speaking, we're more or less the same. The first time I really realized that I was Basque and it was different, it was here in the United States. I came to the United States, to Bakersfield, California, and there's a big Basque community. And I saw that you have all of these kids from the United States, American, they speak perfect English and also perfect Basque. I was like, and you don't speak any Spanish at all? Okay, there's a strangeness. That's very interesting because if somebody speaks two languages in Basque country, it would be Basque and Spanish. Spanish. Yep. But because the Basque culture, it's a culture. And the culture is the food, it's the language, it's the music, it's everything. So 
It's the same, more or less, in the Basque country in Spain, the same Basque country in France, the same Basque country in the United States. It is a very powerful ethnic. I've heard people say that the Basque culture in the United States has actually contributed more to our clichetic sort of image of romantic, the Basque are. Romantic, Basque. yeah. What is the romantic image that we get? And does it come from California or does it come from Europe? Well, you have to think that in the Basque country we're either fishermen's or we're shepherds. And when we needed to go away, we only knew how to do those things. So we went to wherever we have cows or goats, which is Bakersfield, California, or Boise, <laughs> Idaho. Or Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and the fishermen's, they went to Miami. So like, there's a lot of Basques in Miami, yeah, Idaho, and, and California. And California. And your family is a family of shepherds? Yep. And Augustine, your family? They've been running a fishing company for a long time. Fishing. So yeah. that's, that, that is very strong. Now, when you think about Basque struggles, it seems to me the French Basque people have been more comfortable being assimilated into French society, whereas the Spanish Basques have been more strong in defending their independent way of raising their children or something. What is your take on that, Augustine? Well, let me not, let me not agree with that. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Tell me, uh, how do the French Basques express their independence then? I have to say, I go very often to the French Basque area. Mm-hmm. Um, Off-season, I spend my free time there. And also, because I'm taking a lot of travelers to that area. And uh, sometimes I go back home and I say, I think they're more Basque than we are. They have a lot of demonstrations. They, you know, in the Spanish side, has been forbidden during the dictatorship. And then we had all this violence that divided the society. So people were not shy, but they were not... Um, so it was more dangerous under Franco to demonstrate in oh, Spanish yes, Basque country. Yes, you yeah. would get into trouble just by speaking Basque. And the French were more free to, to be Basque. Yes, and uh, there was no violence. I mean, um, okay. was, ETA was living on that side, but it was acting mostly in ah, Spain. So the ETA, it could be French and Spanish, but the struggles of the ETA have been more in the Spanish side because that's where they had the confrontational government. Yes, it started during the dictatorship as a way of fighting Franco. Okay. This was ETA was a political party, and they decided to get the arms and start fighting him. So we got ETA political party and then ETA the army party. So the ETA political ambitions were more permissible in France. No, it was just a Spanish um, issue. It was and a Spanish issue. The thing they were in France is that uh, they would have more freedom to stay. I mean, there have been a lot of arrests during these times, during all these years back. And uh, they were living just in Biarritz, Socoa, Ciburu, all these places very, very close to Spain. Okay, so that was a, a safe haven for the yes, violent ETA, yes. which just crossed the border with the Basque friends in France. It was. And then when they wanted to get back into the action, they go south of the border and deal with that's Spain. That's it. The French government was doing nothing, and then they started to collaborate with Spain, and that uh, made the difference. Okay. The ETA is famous for its violent actions in the interest of Basque independence, and Basically, people want to be able to raise their children speaking their language and have their customs. And recently, the ETAs, or their tactics, have, it seems to me, fallen out of favor. What is the latest on uh, Basque independence and the, the actions taken to defend Basque independence? Well, ETA is almost over. The whole thing has changed. I mean, the whole society has changed because there's no violence. There's a stronger nationalist feeling. And uh, we don't have to mix the terrorism with the nationalism. So you can still work for your national needs, but you don't resort to violence. Oh, yes, of course, of That's course. Great. And now that uh, there's no violence, I think that feeling has increased. 
I mean, more people are showing off that they're they're bad people because they don't need to be ashamed of the violence of the ETA. Not ashamed, but uh, if you you would show the Icuriña, the Basque flag, or you would say you're a Basque instead of saying Spanish, you will be considered either a terrorist or a terrorist supporter. Before, yeah, and now was... now it's more permissible. Yes, so you you can show your Basque flag now without being uh, considered a violent. Yes, uh, you just, I mean, you're a Basque, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, right. back in the old days. But that's part of the whole European Union idea, I think, is that small nations get a place at the table. Yes. And yes. that's the beautiful thing about the EU. And now that is the situation. Guides from Basque Country are our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Augustin Cerisa specializes in surfing, kayaking, and recreational sports on Spain's northern coast. He comes from a long-established family of Basque fishermen in the city of San Sebastian, or as the Basques call it, Donostia. He's joined by Francisco Gloria, and Francisco's family herded sheep for generations in the high country around Pamplona. We have links to our guests' websites in each week's program details. You'll find that in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Francisco, has the EU been a good thing for, for Basque rights? I think so, yes. The European common market is, for all of these tiny little countries that are inside of countries, more permissible, and we can do what we, we want but I don't think that it's a good thing to separate from the main countries. I don't think that we will allow that. No, so secession is not really a goal, no. but being true to your culture yeah. is the new, the new hope and a reasonable new hope trend. with yeah. the EU. As it cites here, as a tourist coming to Basque Country, it's important that we see it as a cultural region of its own. Yeah. You know, it's not Spanish, it's Basque. If we're going to Basque Country, what would the top sites, if you have a week in Basque Country, Francisco, where would you go? Well, first, you have to go to San Sebastian. San Sebastian, San Sebastian is the heart, of the okay. most beautiful city. Even Franco went to San Sebastian yes. <laughs> for his vacations for like 20 years. Okay. Yeah, he would even do there. It is extremely beautiful. It's gorgeous, and you have the beach, you have the food, you have the tapas. We call them pinchos up there. Yeah. So the uh, famous food and the gorgeous beach, the Crescent Beach. Uh, so that's San Sebastian. That's okay, and then Then you else? have to go to the new modern city called Bilbao. Bilbao. Everybody its... knows it with Guggenheim, the museum. Bilbao was... Uh, a very uh, strong industrial area, and it's been reinvigorated with this new investment with mm-hmm. the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, so Guggenheim was looking for a new place to open a, another museum in Europe besides uh, Venice. And Bilbao said, OK, we're going to pay the, uh, the building no matter how much it costs, and they went to Bilbao. Has it been a good investment for Bilbao? The best. Wow. It has changed the city. Okay, two great cities. What else do we do? Well, my city, Pamplona, of course. <laughs> Pamplona, no, famous Pamplona. for the running of the bulls. Famous for the running of the bulls, yes. And we... is Pamplona actually Basque, or how does that work? Well, uh, ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pamplona, it is a, a different region. It's called Navarra. Right. And Navarra, it's very, very special, because from Pamplona to the north, we have Basque culture. But from Pamplona to the south, we do not have Basque culture. Okay. So if we talk about a culture, half of Navarre, it is Basque. If we talk geographically, half Navarra, it's completely separated from the Basque country. Okay. Historically, Navarra was a separated kingdom mm-hmm. from Spain. So, But culturally, you can say Pamplona has Basque uh, yeah. flavor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have Pamplona, we have San Sebastian, and then we, we have Bilbao. We go to the French part. Yeah. You can have Saint-Jean-de-Pied-de-Port. Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. That's the up in the mountains. It's up in the mountains. And the the kickoff point for the, the pilgrimage all the way to Santiago. There you go. It's the beginning of the Camino de Santiago. Okay. And then you have the coast in France where you have Saint-Jean-de-Luz or Biarritz. 
Biarritz, and then the big city in the French part. Uh, it's Bayonne. Bayonne. And Bayonne has uh, some very nice museum. And, yeah, uh, the Basque Museum. If you want to start and understand the Basque culture, I think the Basque Museum in Bayonne is perfect. Yeah. Beiritz is the famous resort, and it's very famous for European resort goers. I didn't really like Beiritz much, and I love Saint-Jean-de-Luz. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? Well, Biarritz, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, but it's just that. If you want to see people in the streets and noise and beauty, and you know, that is Saint-Jean-de-Luz. If you are attracted by history, it's where the king's son of France got That's married. Right. So the king, they had this big uh, marriage between the French and the Spanish king. They said to get married halfway between? Yep. Saint-Jean-de-Luz. From Madrid. Augustin and Francisco tell us more in a minute about the Basque country in Spain and France, including their recommendations for the must-see sites and the must-eat foods. And in just a wee bit, we'll raise a toast to the Irish as we get impressions from the rugged Aran Islands as we tap into the singing culture of Ireland. We're at 877-333-RICK. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. We're celebrating the start of spring Basque style right now on Travel with Rick Steves with an intimate look at what the Basque country of Spain and France offers as a distinctive cultural region. Our guides are proud of their Basque lineage, and they come to us from the Basque country in Spain. Agustin Sarisa lives in the coastal city of San Sebastian, and Francisco Gloria comes to us from Pamplona. Our interview was recorded prior to the global pandemic shutdowns. Augustine, we've talked about all of these sites in France and in Spain, and we have not talked about uh, Guernica. What's the importance of Guernica historically for the Basque people? Well, he got really promoted with the Picasso painting. So uh, the horrible bombing by uh, Hitler yeah, and Franco in the Civil War. Yeah, he was representing the bombing uh, during the Civil War, 1937. The uh, German-Italian airplanes uh, bombed the, the city of Guernica. Picasso made Guernica famous with the uh, yes, famous Yes, well, that Guernica was a um, really bad bombing, right? It right. was on a Monday. Monday is a big day for the market. So, wow, so they planned to bomb when everybody was there in the market. Mm-hmm. That's right. That happened during the midday. Picasso was really in, uh, inspired to be involved because of the humanity of that, I think. Yes, at that time, uh, Picasso was getting ready for the expo in Paris. He uh, got the information, and in three months, he painted the, the Guernica. Now, also, we have to remember, Guernica was, was not just any town. It's a very important town to the Basque people even before World War II. Yeah. What is the importance to the Basque people of Guernica? The oak tree. The, the oak, tr- oak tree, the yeah. old oak tree. The old oak tree was, is the symbol of the Basque people. Right. Since the 11th century, the governors of the area have been gathering around the oak tree to so set up the rules. way, way back to oh, the yes. mythic foundations of the yes. Basque people when they would gather together and their leaders from different clans would come together under the oak tree in yeah. Guernica. Yeah. That must be like a pilgrimage if you're... A Basque oh, yes, it's, it's a must. If you want to go deeper into the uh, history of the Basque community and the Basque people, I think it's a must to visit Guernica. And, and it's quite easy to visit these cities close together. They're all within an hour of each other. Oh, yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Basque country, and we're joined by two uh, friends who are guides in Basque country, Augustine Sarisa and Francisco Gloria. 
Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn's on the line in Olympia, Washington. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Hi, Rick. Hi. Hey, um, my family and I are going to be touring the Basque country of Spain and France, and you've mentioned some generalities about places and sites that we should see. But can you give me specifics about, say, San Sebastian or some of those other areas? What, you know, museums and sites should we not miss? Okay, well, that's a good question. We should ask Augustine, because you live in San Sebastian. Yes. What one site must we see in San Sebastian? Well, uh, you have two mountains. Up top of those mountains, you have a lookout over the city. You can take the funicular to the top of the mountain and enjoy the views. Or you, if you want to, you know, stretch your legs and uh, take a stroll up to the other mountain, you can go through the castle into the museum of the city. If you have a nice day, if you have the chance to get to there on a nice day, you will enjoy very much the views of the city and the little mountains surrounding the city. You know, Augustine, for me, uh, San Sebastian, more than any other place, is a place where you eat your sightseeing uh, in the <laughs> tapas bars. And uh, if you were going to take me to one tapas bar and feed me one special dish, where would it be and what would it be? Well, there are plenty of them. The old town is full of um, tapas bars, and you can find... Pinchos, we call them pinchos in the So Basque the word country. for tapas in Basque is pincho. Yeah. But what's one dish you, you would have? What was your favorite? Because there's um, many. Yeah, the foie gras grilled. Foie gras. Yeah. Ah, and what bar would you have it in? Well, there are plenty of them. You've got Gandarias. I mean, that's very popular. And uh-huh. they do have the Cuchara de San Telmo, which is very famous. San Telmo. Yeah. Uh, does that help you, Lynn? Yes, absolutely. I was going to, the next question was, how do I eat my way to the Basque country, which I understand is some of the best cuisine in Europe? Oh, it's incredible. And in San Sebastian, it's just like drop in with an appetite and there's plenty of friendly people to help you out. Good luck. Thanks, oh, thanks for your call. You're welcome. James is on the line in Palm Desert, California. James, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, uh, Rick. My wife and I are planning a trip to Paris and Provence. And what I was looking to do is possibly add a two to three three-day side trip over to uh, the Basque area from uh, Provence. Now, one was best way to get there, and two, a short visit, where best to go. So first of all, Augustine, if you were in Marseille or Avignon in southern France, how would you get to San Sebastian? Would you fly or take the train? You can take the train, but it would be better to fly. If you can fly to be a rich airport, that mm-hmm. would be the best choice. Remember, in Europe, there's a lot of discount airlines, and there's in so many cases you can fly cheaper than you can take the train. Yeah. You'd sure. probably try to find a flight to Bayeritz, and then you're within an hour of all these places we're talking about. Are sure. you, uh, James, are you thinking mostly of uh, French or Spanish best country or, or a representative sampling of both? It's more really a representative sampling. Right. I would say Bayonne to start. That's the big historic capital of the French part of uh, Basque Country. And then yep. if you if you have a night in a charming little town in France, it would be Saint-Jean-de-Luz for yes. me. Yep. And then okay. you got to go down to San Sebastian. Use that as a headquarters, and if you have the energy, see the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao and, and make the historic pilgrimage to Guernica. Yep. Yeah, that okay. would be a good option. Boy, that sounds good. Just saying <laughs> that makes me want to go there. A lot to do in three days. Yeah, you need, a, you need to cut your southern friends' time a little shorter and spend more time in Basque Country. Well, <laughs> distances are, are short. I mean, there's not a long distance drive from one place sure. to the other. That's right. Sure. Good luck, James. Okay. All right, thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for coming. You thank take you. care. Francisco Gloria from Pamplona and Agustin Sarisa from San Sebastian are our guides to Basque Country right now on Travel with Rick Steves. A reminder that today's interviews were recorded prior to the pandemic and its closures. Tell us about your own Basque Country experiences. 
Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Kent's on the line in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Kent, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Last last March, we were in Spain, and we actually made an effort to uh, specifically see Basque Country and use Pamplona as a base. And our, our trip one day was going to be from Biarritz to San Sebastian, and the proprietor of our hotel recommended that we visit Ribia, which is right between the two towns. And that was his hometown. And so we stopped uh, in Andaribia, and it was just a beautiful little cobblestone street-lined town. Hmm. And while we were walking through the streets, we heard a, a loud noise and noticed a, a small parade coming through town. And it was a, a group of men and women in what appeared to be dunce caps. They were bright green and bright red. They had uh, sheepskin skirts around the middle of their bodies and large bells. Uh, attached to their backs. <laughs> Sounds funny to me. Do they force these people to do that? <laughs> and, and and in the middle of the group was a gentleman dressed uh, very much as a shepherd. I, I was listening a moment ago about the, the family of shepherd there. And I yeah, thought, this, uh, this is a question for yeah. Francisco, the shepherd man. The shepherd man. Those are the Hialdunaks. Uh, these guys, what they do... To start with, the Basque country, we have a lot of mythology and everything is related with nature. And these Hialdunaks, these guys with a big bells, making a lot of noise. It's very, very, very stressing. My kids, they fear them. What they do is they wake up nature. They're telling nature, wake up, girl. It's time to start working. So that is their, their job. They have to wake up nature. So that is what it means. And what time of year? At the end of fall. At the end of fall. You mean at the end of winter or... Oh, sorry. Yeah, at the so end of winter. So it's springtime. Yeah, yeah, it's springtime. It's so called in the spring. The, everything is waking up. The greenery is going to come. In fact, normally in the world, we celebrate the new year, uh, January the 1st. But what is to celebrate there? There's nothing. <laughs> you go from winter to winter. <laughs> so it's like nothing to be celebrated. In the Basque Country, we celebrate winter at the end of the winter. So when would when that be? Life, March, April, April. Like Easter time. Yeah, Easter time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a moment to celebrate something. And what, what is the name of these guys again? Hayaldunaks. The Hail Dunex. Whoa. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, thank you. It was very interesting and very loud, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> it was loud. <laughs> Grab your children and hold them tight. The, uh, That's right. the guys who are waking up Mother Nature are coming down the street. Thanks, Kent, <laughs> for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So we have that one opportunity to see these crazy guys waking up nature. Let's just finish our little discussion here with, with one image that, that really um, helps you connect with best country. Francisco, what would it be for you? For me, it would be anything related with uh, nature. Nature, it's our passion, and you can go anywhere. And On the sea? Yeah. In fact, Basque people are famous uh, mariners in the old times, Columbus age. A lot of Basque, yeah. famous Basque sailors end up in the mountains with exactly. all those shepherds that ended up in Idaho and California. <laughs> and Augustine, how would you think we can really understand Basque culture? We can understand the Basque culture with the fishing. The fishing. You mentioned that I'm coming from a fishing family. We've been uh, famous for making good boats. There were Basque um, sailors joining the Columbus expedition to the mm-hmm. to America. It is known the Basque people had already arrived to the north of um, America before them, and uh, they were famous for um, um, whale hunting. This, whale hunting too. Yeah, there's a record of Basque people selling in the, in the market in the south of France in the seventh century uh, whale products. A tough people. Yeah. And even if you're not going to get out on a boat with some Basque people, you can go to your town, San Sebastian, and eat the uh, Oh, yeah, the catch. that's for sure. To finish things off, how would you say uh, thank you and bon voyage, happy travels? Yeah, you would say, on the, on the yuan.
I would say merci, bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much and Thank happy you. travels. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Sail north across the Atlantic from Basque Country, and your next stop might be in Ireland, in fact, County Cork. Keep going up the west coast of Ireland, and you might find yourself on the same ferry that Sarah McCormick took on a recent visit to the weather-worn Erin Islands. This is our main village, Corona. This is our capital, like New York, where we have our one and only supermarket, one post office, one bank. That's about it. And the island is nine miles by three miles, and the population is 2,000 people in summertime, and right down to 800. I'm on a tour bus on the island of Inishmore, the largest of the Aran Islands. These are three rocky islands off Ireland's rough west coast. It's just an hour-long ferry ride to the bustling city of Galway, but it's a world away. Financial district, blink and you miss it. Bank of Ireland. Only open one day a week and winter time. Depends on the weather and uh, open... My guide for the day is Diana, a young mother who grew up here. She's a short, compact woman with long, dark hair, a no-nonsense demeanor, and she's funny. We have three pubs and we have three churches. A lot of spirits going on. Outside the tiny town, we drive through a rough and beautifully desolate landscape. Treeless green fields dotted with sheep, and crisscrossed with crumbly stone walls. In every direction, ocean waves crash on the rocky shoreline. In the Middle Ages, this was home to some of Ireland's most famous saints, who lived here in isolated monastic communities. When Oliver Cromwell conquered Ireland in the 17th century, some very tough Catholics fled to this harsh place and managed to scrape out a life. The men fished in the Atlantic in small wooden boats called curraghs. There was no farmland, so they manufactured their own soil by mixing seaweed and limestone sand and they lived in almost complete isolation from the mainland. Up to the late 20th century, many older people here couldn't speak a word of English. Irish Gaelic is still the official language of government and education. Okay. Electricity and plumbing didn't arrive here until the 1970s. Get your cameras out. We're briefly stopping here at some traditional thatch cottages. We drive past the foundations of a building. The crumbled remains of the walls show the layout of a home. So if you can visualize, we sit the thatch. This is your living area, the huge fireplace. A few decades ago, tourism started bringing some money to the island. Since then, the islanders have abandoned these quaint cottages with their whitewashed stone walls, thatched roofs, and adorable red doors. Diana said it was impossible to keep the damp out of them. These are all the same plan, all these cottages. Basically, two rooms. One for the living area and also one for sleeping. There could be 10, there could be 17, your family, you still went in the same room. Huge fireplace and a hole in the ground as a toilet, outhouse. And you grew up in a house like that? I did. How many brothers and sisters <laughs> do you have? There was uh, five, including my mom, my dad, and my grandfather. Didn't know any difference that I wasn't brought up in a mansion because everybody else around me was also in a thatched cottage. Diana seems awfully young for her childhood to be a tourist attraction. Like most of the island's residents, she now lives in a more modern and comfortable concrete home. Until the tourists came, 
Every man on the island had the same job, catching fish. There isn't a family that hasn't been affected some way or another uh, by drowning. But thank goodness the younger generation are focusing towards education now because before the boys um, would leave at 15 and would go fishing and majority of them wouldn't even reach 18. In the 1930s, American filmmaker Robert Flaherty visited here and was intrigued by the dramatic landscapes and the harsh life of the people. He made a documentary about life on the island, which brought Inishmore to the world's attention. Islanders performed their own lives for the camera. They show the movie daily in town for tourists. A mother and her young son stand atop a high cliff, looking intently out to sea, the ocean pummeling the rocks below. Out in the surf, tossed like a miniature toy boat, three men pull on oars that look like toothpicks. The woman screams to her husband, helplessly beckoning him in to shore in safety. Apparently the movie was staged, but those ocean waves are very real. Is your father and grandfather fishermen? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my great-grandfather died drowned. He was drowned. Coming in there, the bay. Yeah. Diana drops us off at the island's biggest attraction, Dun Angus. One of Ireland's oldest archaeological sites, it's an Iron Age fort with concentric walls 13 feet thick and 10 feet high. It's a 30-minute climb up a rocky path to the fort, which is perched at the top of a sheer cliff overlooking the ocean. You can barely hear the waves crashing on the rocks 300 feet below. And there's no fence to keep you safe. Tourists like me crawl out to the edge on hands and knees to lie on our stomachs and peer down at the expanse of ocean below. It's an edge-of-the-world kind of place. At the visitor center below the fort, there's a woolen shop selling the traditional sweaters the island is famous for. A woman who might be in her 60s or 70s is trying to help a German woman find the right hat. No, you don't wear it like that. Yeah. She tells me that all the sweaters are handmade by island women, who all know how to knit. I make the mistake of asking if any of the island men knit. Oh, God forbid if any of my older generation seen a man with a pair of knitting needles in their hands. They would have a heart attack. The real man wouldn't have a pair of knitting needles in his hands. Come on. They'd have a spade or a shovel or a... Back on the bus, Diana seems more open to the changes here. Um, we have a mix of every nationality now on the island, which is great because you don't have to marry your second cousin anymore. <laughs> but people did, you know, they had no choice. They, <laughs> we end our tour in a pub for some delicious salmon chowder and a pint of stout. An elderly man at the bar tries, without much luck, to teach me how to complain about the bad weather in Irish Gaelic. Say that. The weather's bad. I ask him if he is a fisherman. Yeah. I am. I was a fisherman. I was not fishing anymore. Get note. <laughs> From the island of Inish Moor, 10 miles off the coast of Ireland's County Galway, this is Sarah McCormick for Travel with Rick Steves.
We'll share a toast to the singing culture of the Irish from north to south. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. No matter where you travel in Ireland, you'll find music's an important part of the scene. The deeper you immerse yourself in the musical culture of the Irish, the more you'll learn about Irish history and legends, even while you're having a rousing good time. To help us tap into the singing culture of the Irish, we've imported two of the best spokesmen I can think of to demonstrate how the Irish can make a lyric and a tune an important part of their identity. Liam O'Reardon's a tenor who comes from a musical family and specializes in traditional ballads of Ireland. You can often find Liam singing in the pubs in County Cork as part of a duo called Trad Roots. And Stephen McPhillamy is a tour guide who runs a youth hostel in Derry in Northern Ireland. Stephen and Liam, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Pleasure to be here. Liam, why is music such a big deal in Ireland as opposed to almost any other country I can think about? I think, for what it's worth, our history was passed on in a lot of the songs. A lot of the stories were passed on. So that oral tradition with music. Oral tradition with music. That was how they kept the history alive for so long because uh, we were suppressed for so many years. Huh. And we kept our music alive by putting it into song and passing on the tradition. You couldn't print... um, honest, Irish-oriented material no. under centuries of British rule. Exactly. But you could exactly. sure sing around the, the kitchen table. And the fact that we were able to sing in our own native tongue as well. In other words, the British didn't the British know what you were singing about. Yeah. So a lot of these roots are, are in Gaelic rather than English? Yes. A lot of the songs have been translated to English by Irish people because, unfortunately, our language is dying out now. So but the, the culture carries on in English yeah. even though it has a, uh, roots in Gaelic. Yes. You know, if I was at a campfire with a bunch of friends and we had a guitar player and we could sing songs, I could probably sing 15 or 20 songs, mm-hmm. maybe 30. How many songs do you think you could sing around a campfire? Uh, I would say I'd be there for a week, nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> take, a, take a guess, how many songs? I, I have think? no idea. I, I would say maybe maybe a thousand, I don't know. A thousand? Maybe. You were, maybe. You were interviewed by some German journalist, I understand. There was, a, there was a German girl, actually. She came to Ireland to do a thesis, her college thesis on Irish music. And she attended my gigs for a number of weeks. And before she left, she showed me, and I didn't believe it, she showed me 800 different songs that I had sung. 800 songs that that you had sung. Mm. You know, some people can memorize the Quran, or some people can do this or that, which is an astounding amount of memory. And you were raised in a musical family. Yes, yes. Proud to say it. And uh, your father was a singer also? He still sings. My father still sings. He's a... in my opinion, he's one of the best Irish voices I've ever heard, but maybe I'm a little biased, but... But it must have inspired you as a, of as course, a child. Of course, of course. And, you know, I, I went to hear him sing in different venues from uh-huh. a very young age. And yeah. My dad was a piano player, and when I was a little kid, my, my goal was to learn his favorite song on the piano. Right. What was your dad's favorite song to sing? My, one of my dad's favorite songs is, happens to be, at the moment, one of my favorite songs. It's an old song from Patrick Kavanagh. It's about Dublin. I might do a verse. Yeah. Raglan Road on an autumn day I saw her first and knew that her dark hair would weave a snare that I might one day rule. I saw the danger and I passed 
along the enchanted way And I said, let grief be a falling leaf At the dawning of the day Now, why would that be your dad's favorite song? It's it's a song about a lady from Dingle. Oh, Patrick Kavanagh was watching from the window one day, and he saw this lady walk down, stony about her, I think, huh. and recognized her beauty and fell in love with the beauty of the lady and wrote the song. Steve and myself have a friend who has a music store in Dingle, and he actually gave me the lady's name the last time we spoke, but I forgot it, imagine. Now that is amazing. So your dad's favorite song is about, you know exactly what street it was about, and yes. actually what woman it's about. Yes. Your dad knows probably a thousand songs also. I'd say more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Irish traditional folk music. I'm joined by Liam O'Reardon uh, from County Cork and Stephen McPhillamy from uh, the north of Ireland. Stephen, when you travel around Ireland, and, and you're a tour guide, you travel around Ireland a lot, Almost any town you come into has a song about it. Every river has a song about it. What's that like, traveling around your country and all these places conjure up favorite songs? Yeah, it's brilliant. You know, when I first discovered Liam, seven or, was it, ten years ago now, Liam, um, he's a Cork man and I'm a Northern man. And when I go down to listen to him sing the Cork songs, you know, I just I just love it. I mean, I get these um, goosebumps. And, you know, when I sing the Cork songs, they sound okay. I mean, I could never have the same passion for a Cork song that Liam would have. What is it about a Cork song sung by a Cork man that gives you goosebumps? Just the passion for the region. You know, we all have songs about Ireland that we love, but isn't it great that within Ireland there's 32 counties, so there's 32 little nations within a nation. Yeah. And I just think that's brilliant, just to be able to keep that regional identity strong. And at the same time, when Liam comes up to visit me in Derry, because we've become very good friends, and he comes up to visit me in the north and... I'll sing Derry songs and, you know, he listens to us singing our <laughs> yeah. Derry songs or our Donegal songs and he, you could just see that he loves and has respect for us singing our songs and I bring him, him into my local pub in the middle of Derry uh, into Padder O'Donnell's traditional bar and, and it's like bringing... Um, Britney Spears in or something. It's just superstar has arrived from, from a Cork. different from a different yeah. uh, corner of your he's island. He's come yeah. from he's come up from the like the deep so south for want news. of a better term. There's yeah. a great musician from Cork. In Ulster. Yeah. Come on down to this pub tonight. Yeah, who's bringing his songs up from the south. We know all the words of all these songs. You know, we know all the words of the Cork songs, and right. he knows all the words of the northern songs. Right. But for us to have a real live Cork man come up to the north, <laughs> you know, okay. and sing, it's just brilliant. Done right. A Cork song done right. With, You're with probably the, tired yeah, of hearing yeah, your friends sing it. Exactly. And done with the accent and knowing that those words mean something to him because he grew up there. Okay, so let's see. Liam just came to your town, your favorite pub, up in the opposite side of the island in the far north. And here's Liam there. He's a Corkman. You love Cork music, but you're tired of hearing it by Ulsterman. Ask him to sing one of your favorite songs and see if he can do it right off the top of his head. Well, Let's he, hear the goosebumps. Well, you can see the smile already. He, exactly, <laughs> he knows exactly the song I'm going to ask him to sing because there's an area in Cork City called Fair Hill and Liam's from that area. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a good old street ballad about young boys growing up in Cork. Uh, so it's called The Boys of Fair Hill and he's sick and tired probably of me requesting him <laughs> to sing this. But I'll, I'll ask him for that one. The Cork accent is very distinctive, they say. Yeah. You know, they also say that you never have to ask a, a Corkman where he comes from because he'll tell you first. <laughs> very proud. Very proud. Give us the boy. So here's the song. Come on, boys, and you'll see lads and lassies full of glee. 
famous for all, they will make your heart thrill. The boys, they will not harm you, the girls, they won't charm you. Here's up them all, said the boys of Fairhill. If you come to Cork, you'll get Rasheen, Murphy Stout and Pig's Crew Beans. Famous for all, they will make your heart thrill. Thousands cross from o'er the foam, just to kiss the Blarney Stone. That can be viewed from the groves of Fairhill. And in Cork City there is no law, the next Lord Mayor is Andy Gaw. Here's up them all, said the boys of Fairhill. And Blarney girls are very rude, they go swimming in the nude. Here's up them all, said the boys of Fairhill. This song goes on for nice. about 15 yeah. minutes, so we'll leave it at that. That is a, a delight to have within your culture all those fine points that the average tourist would be oblivious to. Yes. But within Ireland, it just I can see it just turns you both on. But there's a connection there. You see, I, I've brought probably 100 groups now over the years to listen to Liam down in Cork and, and right. Kinsale where, when he's playing. And when our groups, our visitors, hear Liam sing a song and they know it's a song from the South because he's introduced it as a Cork song. And suddenly they know me as their tour guide from the North and I join in the chorus and the barman from somewhere else joins in the chorus and we all just, the whole bar erupts in the chorus. There's something very attractive in that and I can, you know, there's almost a magic. Well, there is See, a magic. I've, I've had that magic and you search for it as a tourist because I'm pretty clueless about all the fine points of Irish music, but I know when you get that magic. I don't care if you're a uh, Kerryman or a Corkman or from Ulster or if you're from Seattle or, or Florida or whatever. If you're there... You feel that magic. There's there's something combusting that I just and I I don't feel it every time. I mean, you go out you go out looking for it, and it's like fishing. And you sometimes you really come That's home. That's true. With sometimes you will find it. Sometimes you won't. It's always St. Patrick's Day when the Irish are with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Stephen McPhillamy was raised in Derry in Northern Ireland, and he now operates the Milltown Guesthouse in Dingle and a hotel at Lauterbrunnen in the Swiss Alps. Liam O'Reardon's from a musical family in County Cork, and his CDs include Sticking Out a Mile from Blarney. There's another song called Johnny Jump Up, uh-huh. which was Johnny Jump Up was a cider that was brewed in whiskey casks in Cork. Right. And it was awful. Yeah. And Steve, actually, he teaches the song to the people on the tour. Right. Now, this is a Donegal man teaching a Cork song to a bunch of uh, tourists from this America. <laughs> and when they get to the pub... It's the first thing they ask me to sing, and I pretend I don't know it, first of all, and you know. But then it's so much fun. I'll just sing the chorus. Okay. Oh, never, oh, never, oh, never again, if I live to a hundred or a hundred and ten. For I fell to the ground and I couldn't get up after drinking a quart of that Johnny Jump Up. We even got Rick Steve to sing. <laughs> 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 My background, you know, with the songs is that I grew up in a house where it wasn't very musical, so I didn't have that blessing that Liam had. My parents don't play any instruments and right. didn't really listen to the songs much. But when I was growing up, I found an LP. I found it in, in a dusty old collection of stuff and I dusted it down and it said um, 20 best Irish rebel songs and patriotic ballads. And it was like opening a Pandora's box. You know? Yeah. And it was like something that... And my mother had said to me, oh, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be listening to those patriotic songs because we lived up in the north where there was, you know, v- violence on the fringes. And yeah, because this be patriotic is songs wasn't that, always that stirs your, your feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember listening to it with the earphones on and it was just like a rebirth for me. I was probably about 12 and I just said to myself, this is the future. So I sat down and learned practically every Irish rebel song that was ever written. 
you know, my repertoire is probably four to five hundred songs. And and when we were going off to football games, you know, big football games, we'd all go off in a big flotilla of coaches and motor buses. And I'd always sit down in the backseat. I'd be invited down the backseat with all the big tough lads. And I think it's the main reason I never got bullied as a teenager because I always knew the verses to every song. Everybody knows the chorus, you see. Right. But not everybody knows all the verses. And that was my strength growing up was the big boys always said, bring McFillamy down, he knows the he verses. Knows the verses. Anybody who knows the verses... Yeah. They're an is, important part of the yeah, team. Yeah, because I was like, I was like the, the little minstrel boy being brought down the back to <laughs> sing all the verses. You know, I was looking through a, a whole list of all different Irish ballads and so on, and there's so many different um, topics, basically. You got 1798 Rebellion, you got the War of Independence, you got Immigration, you got Drinking, you got Funny Songs, and I know you like Rebel Songs. What's a, what's a good Rebel Song? Well, I like the older ones, you know, from the 1916 period. I like the Foggy Dew which talks about 1916. So this is the War of Independence kind of era? Yeah, just, just yeah. that era, even before that, when we had a big rebellion in 1916, because it was a military disaster. And the fact that we can write songs about defeats and make them still sound honourable, and you know, they're very respectable songs, or respectful songs. It respects our patriotism and pays homage to it. Like, um, there's a line in the, in the song, uh, The Foggy Jew, it talks about... Um, and from the plains of Royal Meath, because we have a county called Meath, and from the plains of Royal Meath, strong men came hurrying through, while Britannia's Huns with their long-range guns sailed in through the foggy dew. Britannia's Just, Huns? Yeah, it's not. It, it, it sticks the knife in a little bit, but, you know, and then it talks about these young, strong, strapping Irish that men marching That is stirring. In. I mean, even if they lost, I feel like they're heroes. Yeah. Do, do that do. again. That, that, that course, that was so cool. And from the plains of Royal Meath, strong men came hurrying through. While Britannia's Huns with their long-range guns sailed into the foggy dew. Whether those young men did march in or not, it doesn't matter. It just sounds great. It's propaganda, but it's it's good, and it's good to celebrate your patriotism through music. Now, if I was your British overlord, I wouldn't want you singing that song. Not back then, but I have brought thousands of British tourists around Ireland, and they love the rebel songs as well. Is that right? Oh, the British are a fair <laughs> people, and they respect. Funny that our you culture. say that. It's it's when we get English tours to Ireland, Cork, particularly where I play, they'll ask you to sing some of those songs. Is that right? The British tourists, yes, the English guys, yes, yeah. And sometimes I try to explain. You know, I don't want to offend anybody, and mm-hmm. I prefer to sing songs about peace now. Mm-hmm. But you see, there's a genre of rebel songs that have been written in the last, say, thirty or forty years which are pretty hard line and refer more so to the mm-hmm. recent conflict in the north. There's one called Go On Home, British Soldiers, and it, it's pretty hard line. I remember being in the bar one time in the Temple Bar in Dublin, and the Republic of Ireland had played a soccer match that night, and about 50 young lads came in for after the game, and they started singing that, and the bar had heretofore been full of happy English tourists, and the song goes... Uh, Go on home, British soldiers, go on home. Let's hear it with the... G- no, we don't do... I won't do that. No, no, but... Because I, I don't no, do it, but I'll do it. Yeah, okay, no, but okay. I'm just giving you an example of the yeah. song. I'm not condoning it. Go I'm just saying, right. this song cleared the bar. All the English tourists, God help them, got up and walked out. Is that right? So there, so is, there, is, there is... Let's be honest about it. There is an element of more contemporary rebel oh, songs yeah. that, you know, you have to be very careful where you sing them and a lot of people would refuse to sing them. But I'm just giving you an example. Yeah. And because the song, if you want an example of it, here it is. Uh, go on home, British soldiers, go on home. Have you got no beep, beep, home of your own? For 800 years, we fought you without fear and we'll fight you for 800 more. Well, so, yeah. you know, that so sort of stuff. If I'm an Englishman, I, wouldn't be com- I would be a little uncomfortable well, with that. Yeah. But you've got emigration songs, you've got love songs. I, I, I suggest it's three subjects. Yeah. Um, usually it's uh, drink, yeah. emigration, and love. 
Drink, emigration and love. But it certainly doesn't happen in that order. No. Sometimes you get drunk, then you get lucky, and then you better emigrate. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, you're sitting in bars a lot, taking requests. What's the most dreaded request that you don't don't want to hear? Without without doubt, the Wild Rover. The Wild Rover? Yes. Why don't you like that? Because I sometimes have to sing it three or four times a night, and it just gets into my fillings. It's worse than being at the dentist. What about Danny Boy? Danny Boy, I love. Do you, do you get tired of it? You don't get tired I of it? I don't get tired of it because it's a test for, for a singer to sing it, I think. Huh. I'm not saying I do a perfect job on it, but it's got a huge uh, range from very low to very high. And um, I just love the song. That's nice. But I love to hear people sing it in context. What which actually, by the, originally, Danny Boy was called a derriere, which Steve was talking about derry earlier. Danny Boy was the derriere. The melody is called it the derry. derry yeah. From derry, the town of mm-hmm. Derry. The really? song's a northern song. When Northern Ireland go to the Commonwealth Games, that's the anthem we sing, believe it or not. Well, I, th- I thought you'd get tired of it, but if you're not tired of it, let's finish our interview with uh, Liam O'Reardon from County Cork singing a song from Derry, Danny Boy. Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling From glen to glen and down the mountainside Summer's gone All the flowers are dying It's you, tis you Must go and I must bide But come you back When summer's in the meadow When the valley's hushed and white with snow Tis I'll be here in sunshine or in shadow Oh Danny boy Oh Danny boy I love you so Well done, sir. Nice. Liam O'Reardon, Stephen McPhillamy, thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Casmora Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. In the radio pages of our website, you can also find out when stations in other cities air travel with Rick Steves. Look for the link that says find a local station at ricksteves.com radio. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.